0: Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 18 through 23 as we look at Peter's instructions to slaves to be submissive to their masters, so we're still on this general theme of submission that uh, Peter started back in verse 13, where he exhorted the saints to be submissive to the civil authorities. And now he begins to apply it to slaves uh, that were in the church who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. So I'll begin reading in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 18. So please uh, hear with reverence and faith the Word of God, inspired by the Spirit of God. For the blessing of the people of God. Verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And may God bless the reading of his word. Well, again, Peter is primarily addressing believing uh, slaves that were within the church. Again, the institution of slavery was quite widespread within the Roman Empire in the first century. The large cities like Rome, as I mentioned last week, could have 40 to 50 percent in slaves as terms of the population. Generally, uh, empire wide, I've read that the amount of slaves measured maybe 20 percent. So a lot of slaves, some of those would come to faith in Christ and they'd end up within the church. One could become a slave due to various causes. They could become a captive of war. They could be kidnapped. They could be bought on an auction block, sold as a minor into slavery. And if a slave had children, then his children would belong to the master and not to the parent. You could also become a slave by selling yourself to someone because of economic Bankruptcy or insolvency. Some slaves had miserable lives, particularly those who had to work in the mines. Others could be educated, could serve as doctors and teachers and managers and musicians and artists. But the bottom line is they were still the property of the master. They could be sold, they could be leased. They could be exchanged. They could be inherited from one generation to the next, assuming they lived that long, and were often branded like cattle. They had no rights. Some could purchase their freedom if their masters allowed that of them. But again, Peter is addressing the institution as it existed. There was no way they could change it. Yeah, I mean, you're under the Roman Empire, you're under the authority of Caesar. They had no ability to actually change the institution, so they merely just addressed it as it existed. And because many of the churches had believing slaves in their midst, Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter felt it necessary to give them some guidance in how to respond to their masters, particularly those that were unreasonable. So we read in verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect or with all fear, literally, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Now, the word that Peter uses for servants here is a word that primarily focuses on house slaves. These would be the slaves that actually were... Uh, Work close to the house or inside the house doing various jobs or chores or whatever it might be. Uh, Obviously, all slaves are included, but he has a special emphasis upon them primarily because they would be close to the master. They would be under the visual observation of the master more so than slaves that maybe worked out in the fields or worked in other areas like that. So they could come under the abuse of the master more easily because they're right there working nearby with with the master. And oftentimes, uh, wh- whether they're doing menial chores or whether they were teaching the children of the master, they would often be the objects of... The master's bad temper, vices, and abuse. Of course, if you're a slave, there's no way to challenge the mistreatment. No lawsuits could be filed to protect them. Slaves didn't belong to slave unions that could somehow, you know, uh, work together to improve the quality of their life. They couldn't quit. And apply for unemployment benefits or switch masters. They were stuck in those circumstances. They could not change it. There was no way out. If you escape like Onesimus did from Philemon. If you read the book of Philemon. Then it could be very bad for you if you were ever caught. And if the master wanted to put you to death. He could put you to death. Because you were his property. You belonged to him. So in that context Peter now tells these servants to be submissive to their masters with all fear. Now some say well what who does the fear uh, refer to is it the fear of the master or is it the fear of God? Well in the previous verse verse 17 Peter just exhorted them to fear God so that's probably the meaning in verse 18. You're to be submissive to your masters with all fear, meaning a fear reverence for God should motivate you in that. He says whether the master is good or gentle, of course, that's not a problem being submissive if they're good and gentle, but also he adds in verse 18, even if they're unreasonable. This word unreasonable literally meant something that was curved or bent like a bow. And here it's applied to the moral bentness and curve of the heart of the master. It's bent. It's twisted. It's crooked. It's dishonest. It's harsh. It's unjust. It's unreasonable. And it would be the slave's worst nightmare to be subject to this kind of a master. They could be cruel. They could be demanding, unreasonable. They could punish on a whim if they wanted to. But Peter says, be submissive to them, even if they're unreasonable. Now, again, we live in an age where we don't have slavery in America anymore. So how do you apply this to us today? Because the principle here is transferable, even though we live in an entirely different context than these slaves did in the first century. So how would we apply this principle today? And most commentaries, and I think rightfully so, will go first to any relationship that we have where we're under the authority of someone else, whether it's like an employment or your job or something like this. And how do we respond when we are treated unjustly by those who have authority over us? And again, in our context, that higher authority could be your boss. It could be the government. It could be different avenues of evaluating it. Of course, the big difference is we're not slaves today and we do have rights. And we can protect ourselves by law. We can defend ourselves and use the courts to that end if prudent. Uh, if our job is oppressive, if our boss is unreasonable and unjust, then we can always leave that job and go find a better job. So we have many options available to us, of course, that the slaves didn't have. If your boss overlooks you for a raise or promotion, possibly due to your Christian faith, you get mistreated, then you, you, you wrestle again with this principle that that Peter is presenting. Maybe your boss asks you to do something illegal or unethical or dishonest or wrong or which violates a biblical principle or a biblical commandment, and you refuse politely, but you get fired. That's just part of the consequences sometimes that that we're faced with. So even today, we can feel vulnerable in certain relationships that we have with authority, with no recourse or god honoring way to, to legally fight back or protect ourselves. And this would, be some, this would be the type of area that we could apply this uh, principle to us even today. A uh, part of Peter's wisdom, I think, in this passage, is that submission for them should be the, the, the way they should always approach it. And again, it's different for us. Paul used his citizenship rights on at least three times in the book of Acts to protect himself from an unjust uh, ruler or circumstances. And we can do that too. But sometimes we find ourselves in circumstances where you can't do that. Sometimes we're kind of boxed in and we really don't have any ways to, to justly over Come an unjust ruling or treatment from someone else. And again, I think part of Peter's wisdom in giving this instruction to the servants is that in part it would protect these slaves from. If they, if they have a submissive attitude towards this unjust master and they submit to it as opposed to rebelling against it, their submission would help protect them from further abuse and mistreatment. It could soften any ongoing mistreatment depending upon how they respond to it. So if we resist, if we're in a situation where like a boss or somebody like that mistreats us on the job and we throw a hissy fit and we get all upset and start complaining and and griping and making a a big stink out of it, you know, you may make things worse. You may bring on more of that same unjust uh, treatment uh, upon yourself. But if you... Humbly submit, then it can possibly decrease the animosity aimed at you. It's interesting, God has uh, instilled this kind of a defense mechanism even in some animals. And I know you can probably think of one. Uh, A few years ago, our dog started barking his head off, her, her head off. And I could tell she was fighting with something in our backyard, growling, and I could just hear all this. So I ran out there, and of course, a possum had come into our backyard, and our dog was just tearing it up. And uh I won't describe to you kind of what was happening to that poor critter, but uh as I ran up on the dog to get the dog off the possum, she was breaking down on it, and there was crunching and cracking and popping and all these kinds of things. I thought, she killed this possum deader in a doornail. So I get the dog off, get her inside, and I'm, I'm inside. Man, we just, we just murdered an animal in my backyard. So what I'm going to do? So after a while, I go in my garage and get a shovel I'm going to go out and bury the carcass. Of course, you go out there, and that possum's nowhere to be found. It's gone. So, obviously, what had happened to that animal is that God had wired that animal, when it was attacked viciously, to go into a state of shock. There's actually a name for it called thanatosis, where it plays dead. You know, we always think possum plays dead. Well, that's a God-given ability to this animal to ward off ongoing attacks. Because most animals, they need that stimuli. They need that resistance to encourage them to go on and make the kill. And whenever the animal suddenly just goes into a a passive, totally still uh, posture, well, then a lot of animals will just give up and, and walk away. And I think maybe there is some wisdom here when we're in that kind of situation when there's no way out, that sometimes just, again, like Peter is exhorting these slaves to submit, be submissive even to your unreasonable masters, can be for your own protection as well given the circumstances. Uh, But this is something that I think is is, uh, worthy of considering. The actual reasons that Peter gives to these slaves for being submissive to their masters is found in verses 19 through 23, actually through the end of the chapter. We'll say verse 24 and 25 next week. It deals more with the atonement. But it says in verse 19, for this finds favor. Reading from the New American Standard. If for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Now your translation may have may uh, word that differently. But several things he says in verse 19 that it finds favor. This favor is clarified at the end of verse 20 as being favor with God. And I think that's the focus. Now if you suffer submissively I I guess there could be some favor with the master possibly but I think Peter primarily has in mind this finds favor with God he makes that clear at the end of verse 20 So the favor with God is that when God sees the believer the slave submissively, patiently enduring, unreasonable, unjust treatment, unjust suffering, but that slave submits to it patiently, he doesn't have any any way out of it, that this finds favor with God. God is pleased. And it may be the favor along the lines of the other scripture that says God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Because the word favor in Greek is actually the word grace. This finds grace. In other words, God will bless you and reward you for your faithful response when being treated unjustly. So the idea would be that God gives grace to believers who suffer unjustly with grace. God gives grace to believers who suffer unjustly with grace. We suffer with grace, and then God blesses us with grace. But notice in verse 19, Peter adds to this, If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. There's this issue of conscience toward God. So if I'm suffering because I'm I'm convinced that this is what I need to do, then that finds favor with God. Now the conscience, and some of your translations don't have the word conscience in there, but I think that should be the word. Our conscience is the law of God written in our hearts by nature that helps us distinguish right and wrong. That's our conscience. That's Romans 2, verse 14 and 15. God by nature, when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, He He made them in His image. And part of that image is He implants His moral law within our hearts so we, we have a basic understanding of right and wrong. Now our conscience is only reliable when it's in line with God's Word. And it's not always in line with God's Word. Uh, after Adam and Eve sinned, now suddenly the conscience is can be distorted and polluted and misled. Paul says in First Timothy that there are some false teachers that were seared in their conscience as with a branding iron. I mean, their conscience had been so rendered dull and insensitive, just like you would brand a cattle and now that skin is can't grow hair anymore and you can touch it and they can't feel anything, our conscience can become seared. It can become callous and insensitive to the Word of God. So the conscience only works when it's, when it's being consistently uh, used according to God's Word. So we have to take a grain of salt with the words of that great philosopher and theologian, Jiminy Cricket, who sang in one of his songs... Always let your conscience be your guide. Well, that's not good wisdom. In fact, that comment only proves the axiom, never take advice from an insect. But for the believer, because the Spirit of God is at work in our hearts, renewing that conscience in line with God's Word, we can put confidence in our conscience when it's applying the Word of God correctly Situation. So he says in verse 19, for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrow when suffering justly. This finds favor with God. Now notice also in verse 19, he says, when a person bears Up under sorrow. So now he's really, he doesn't say just a slave, he says a person. So that applies to all of us. So he's broadening the application to any person, not just to slaves. So it's a principle that affects us as well. In verse 20, he basically uh, elaborates on this principle when he says, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So notice here in verse twenty, he speaks of being harshly treated. If you're harshly treated because you have sinned, then God is not impressed by how well you you endure the suffering. Now, there's no there's no favor with God. Because you're only getting what you deserve. And in this uh, verse 20, when he says harshly treated, that expression literally means to be beaten with, your, with someone's fists. Now, slaves could identify with that. The slaves were oftentimes beaten by their masters. So Peter is using language that echoes in their world. They've experienced that. So sometimes we can be harshly treated. But again, if it's because of our sin, then there's basically no honor with God. But then he says in verse 20, but when you do what is right and suffer for it, then that finds favor with God. Because sometimes you will be mistreated for your faith. You will be mistreated for doing what is right in the sight of God. And sometimes if there's no escape, if there's no other remedy for that, then we are called to submit patiently and endure it. And when we do that, God is pleased. There's favor with God. That can happen in your life and in mine as well. But now the question is raised, why does it find favor with God for us to respond that way? Why is God pleased? Well, he answers that in 21 through 23. Look at verse 21. For, here's the reason, that you, it finds favor with God if you patiently endure unjust suffering. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. So it finds favor with God because in doing that, we imitate Christ. He becomes our example. We imitate Christ because He suffered unjustly. And there are times when we are called to do the same. Notice in verse 21, He says, You have been called for this purpose, you believer, you slaves, but all of us, and called for this purpose. And that is ultimately, we have been predestined to be conformed to Christ's image. Romans 8.29 We've been predestined to be conformed to His image, but how are we conformed to His image? Suffering is a main part of that. To being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. You see, the suffering that you have to endure in life is not a detour on our way to Christ's likeness It's actually the main highway leading to Christ-likeness. You cannot be like Christ without having to endure a measure of suffering under the providence of God, and that will differ with every believer. But it is the main way, one of the ways... Main ways, I think, that we are to be conformed to the image of Christ is by sharing in His suffering. His was for salvation. Ours is for sanctification. But notice in verse 21, you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. So Christ is our example. This is the only time that word example occurs in the New Testament. It's used of children learning to make letters by copying the teacher's example. So remember in grade school, you know, in my grade school, they had the letters of the alphabet, lowercase, uppercase, all along the the ceiling and we'd get a piece of paper and we'd look up and we would, we would copy that. That was our example and we try to reproduce that on our paper. So what he's indicating here is that Christ becomes our example and we are to, by the grace of God, try to reproduce that in our life. We're to follow in His steps, he goes on to say in verse 21. Now, we're not saved by following Christ's example or following in His steps. Sinners need a Savior, not an an example. But once we come to Christ for salvation, then we're to follow Him as our example on how to suffer. Not to earn any salvation, but to be conformed to His image. Christ's footsteps took Him to Calvary. And we can't think that we're going to escape our own practical calvaries. Jesus, you remember when He told His disciples, if anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his what? His cross and follow Me. Christ's footsteps led Him to the cross. And your footsteps and my footsteps at times will lead us to have to carry our own cross and burden as well as we are gradually conformed to His image. And the same is true with, with Christ. as true with us. The cross before the crown. And right now, we are in the phase of cross-bearing for the church. The crown will be rewarded when Jesus Christ comes back in his glory. That's why I love Romans chapter eight, which you know Peter, excuse me, Paul is saying in Romans chapter eight that, that the creation now is groaning. It's groaning until the return of Jesus Christ. It's now subjected to futility. It's a slave to corruption until Christ comes and transforms this heaven and earth into a new heavens and a new earth. But until then, this creation is groaning. And we are groaning too in this creation. The only thing that will end the groaning is the glory to come when Christ comes back. Not before. So we are in that time of world history when both the children of God and the creation of God are in a groaning experience. And don't expect that to end before Christ returns. It's not until He comes back and we receive the redemption of our body, which is the glorification of our body, that our groaning will be transferred into a state of glory. That is our predestined lot for the church. That's why in Romans 8, 17, Paul says, as children of God, we are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may be glorified with Him. So we are called to this purpose to suffer with Christ so that when He comes back, we might be glorified with Him. That's why Paul could say in Acts 14 to the church, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And one of the ways, therefore, we imitate Christ is by enduring patiently when suffering unjustly and there's really no God-honoring remedy to resolve it. Then we suffer patiently. And in doing that, we are being conformed to the very image of Christ. Now, it's interesting when he refers to Christ as our example, we're to follow in his steps. Because who caused Christ to suffer? Well, it was the government. It was the Jewish leadership. Christ suffered at the hands of a corrupt and evil government. His suffering was the predestined will of God. could not be averted. He willingly came to endure it for us to save us from our sins. But the government is a source of much unjust suffering in the world. Just look around our world. Just the believers that are suffering in communist countries or Muslim countries, Afghanistan, all the turmoil that's there. And it's coming our way, I think. It's already here in many ways for, I think, the the church here in America. Now, Paul would flee when he could, when the government came against him. He would certainly use his citizenship rights. But when he was incarcerated, when he was arrested, he humbly submitted to the authorities. We are to obey our civil authorities as Peter has already instructed to us. But our highest authority is God and sometimes we must obey God which causes us to disobey our government. And if that happens, then we just have to patiently endure the suffering. We don't take up arms. That's for lesser magistrates to lead those efforts. The church in and of itself does not take up arms. We just endure it by God's grace. So, what Peter then goes on to say is, so how did Christ endure the unjust suffering that He was afflicted with? And Peter tells us what He didn't do, and then he tells us what He did. Look at verse 22. This is the example that we're to follow in His steps. "...who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. That's what so he didn't do any of that. So Peter is really drawing heavily from Isaiah 53. The suffering servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ. And he's he's borrowing phrases from that chapter scattered throughout this. It's, it's, you can tell where his mind is. It's really in Isaiah chapter 53. But notice how he describes the Lord. He committed no sin. In other words, Christ never sinned. All of the suffering that he received was unjust. None of it was just. Because he never committed a sin. He never deserved it. It was never warranted any of the abuse or the mistreatment that he had to to uh, endure he goes on to say nor was there any deceit found in his mouth in verse 22 that comes from isaiah 53 verse 9 in other words christ never spoke words of deceit or deception or lies his sinless speech was a reflection of his sinless heart because remember out of the heart comes our words well, because his heart was pure and holy and sinless. His speech was pure and holy and sinless because he was the Son of God. Our mouth, on, in contrast, is oftentimes where much sin comes out of us is through our mouth. James reminds us that the tongue is a fire. It's a world of iniquity. It's set on fire by hell. Hell. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison, and and with our tongue we bless God and we curse man. Not so with our Savior. His words were always holy and sinless and pure. He also didn't revile in return, in verse 23. He was reviled, but he didn't revile in return. Christ was called a Samaritan, a glutton, a wine bibber, a blasphemer, a lawbreaker. They said he was insane, that he was demon possessed, he was in league with the devil, he was a perverter of the nation and a deceiver of the people. He was reviled over and over and over again, but he did not revile in return. On the cross, they mocked him. They insulted him. They reviled him even there. But he did not return evil for evil. As Isaiah 53, verse 7 says, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And then Peter adds in verse 23, He uttered no threats. He, if anyone, had the right to utter a threat against the unjust treatment he was receiving, it would have been the Lord Jesus. He was threatened and abused by the Jewish leaders, the Roman soldiers, King Herod, by the thieves that were being crucified with him. He was struck in the face, spat upon, crowned with thorns around his head, beaten, scourged, cursed, mocked, crucified, and He uttered no threats. Instead, on the cross, He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's how He responded. And how many times when we feel the slightest injustice, We just go crazy pronouncing curses and woes and not the Lord Jesus. He responded with mercy and forgiveness. No retaliation because He was totally submissive to the Father's will. So Christ is an example to us when suffering unjustly. I'm reminded of the godly prototype of a deacon, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, who was faithfully preaching the Gospel to the Jews and they arrested him. They falsely accused him, as they did our Lord. And they began to stone him to death. You remember that at the end of Acts chapter 7. And falling on his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord, bring your wrath upon them. No. Judge them and incinerate them. No. Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And having said that, he fell asleep. What a godly example imitating Christ and His unjust suffering. So Stephen responded in the same way. So if that's how Christ did not respond, how did He respond? Well, in verse 23, He kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. He kept entrusting Himself to God. Entrusting Himself means that the Lord just continually, frequently, gave himself body and soul into the hands of his Heavenly Father. He entrusted himself knowing that God had a plan. God has a purpose. And he knew that that was good. He knew what the end result was going to be. He knew that ahead of him was a horrendous suffering. A suffering that no one can imagine. But he kept entrusting himself into the hands of God. He did that because he knew that it was the Father's will for him to suffer everything that he was about to go through. He trusted that God's will was holy and good and wise. And thus he willingly allowed all the abuse from Judas, the mob that arrested him, Annas and Caiaphas, Pilate, the Roman soldiers, to scourge him and crucify him because he had entrusted himself into the hands of God. Sometimes that's where we were at. Sometimes we're treated unjustly and there's no God-honoring, biblical way to try to offset it or change it. And it's in those times where we just need to patiently endure it and entrust our souls into the hands of a sovereign God who's in control of everything. And that's what the Savior did. He kept entrusting himself to God. Whether you understand the circumstances or not, you're in God's hands. We don't know what the future holds. But we know who holds the future, right? And we entrust our lives, our soul, our wealth, our happiness, our prosperity, whatever it may be, into the hands of God in doing what is right. And then it says at the end of verse 23, he kept entrusting himself to Him who judges righteously. And I think this is significant because Christ was entrusting Himself into the hands of His Father whom He knew judges righteously. And that can have two meanings here. He knew that the Father's judgments were righteous. And He knew that what He was about to endure on the cross to bear the penalty of the sin of sinners so that He might save them. He must endure the wrath of God, the full wrath of God. And He he was entrusting Himself into the Father's hand, knowing that what He must sacrifice was necessary to accomplish the righteous judgment of God upon sin. He was willing to endure that righteous judgment for you and for me that we might be forgiven. That we might know the Lord in saving faith. So He entrusted Himself into the hands of His Father knowing that He judges righteously. But also, there's a second meaning, I think, is that Christ had confidence knowing that the day of judgment was coming, that sinners and those enemies would one day be judged and righteously punished, that He would be vindicated, that He would be resurrected and be brought back up into glory, and ultimately that He would come and judge the living and the dead. And that gave Him confidence as well to continually... And trust himself into the hands of God. So Peter's point to these servants is that when you endure patiently, when suffering unjustly, do so with a good conscience toward God. Knowing that in your suffering, you are being conformed to the very image of Jesus Christ and that this finds favor with God because God delights in His Son. He delights in the suffering of His Son, the resurrection of His Son, the glory of His Son. And as we are being molded and and, and conformed to the image of His Son, God delights in His Son. And when He sees us in all of our weakness and all of our struggles, yet yielding submissively to His sovereign will, He delights in it because He sees His Son in you. He sees His grace molding you more and more into the image of Jesus Christ and He delights in that because He delights in His Son. And what encouragement should that give us when we're facing that unjust suffering that there is no God-honoring or legal way or biblical way to, to soften the blow and we just have to endure it. And when we're boxed into those circumstances, then then do it. Patiently endure it. Looking to God. Entrusting your life into the hands of the God who has loved you and sent Christ to endure a far greater travesty of justice. A far greater level of injustice that He might save you and me from our sins. So even though in this phase of our life we are to take up our cross and follow Him, we look forward to the glory yet to come for all of God's people. So take heart and trust your souls to God knowing that He controls the circumstances. He controls the means and the ends. And that He has a purpose and a plan, whether we comprehend it or not. But His will for you, even in suffering, is always good. It's sanctifying. And it will bring Him glory. And it will be good for you in the end. So may the Lord encourage us with these tough words spoken to these servants. And me when we find ourselves in similar circumstances, may we entrust our souls into the hands of God. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father God, thank You, Lord, that Peter has so loved even the slaves in the church knowing that they are fellow heirs of the grace of God in Christ Jesus, that they are brothers and sisters in Christ And yet, they have a difficult life to live. That in the providence of God, they are under the heavy hand of man. And yet, Lord, You instructed them to humbly submit when they could not find any remedy. And Lord, we thank You that this is wisdom for us today as well. Just give us the grace to know that if we must endure unjust suffering... And we cannot find a God-honoring remedy. Lord, may we rejoice knowing that when we suffer unjustly, we're being conformed to the very image of Jesus Christ. And may we glory in that and count it a high privilege to become conformed to His image awaiting the day of glory yet to come. So give us grace in our troubling, trying circumstances to look to You. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.